Hornet Heaven. Il Primo. Written and read by Mace C.A. Produced by Wiccan O.S. Earth Season 1882-83. A grey mist surrounds him. The air is warm. It envelops him like a blanket. He has no idea where he is or what is happening, but strangely, he doesn't seem to mind. An old man makes his way through the wooden five-bar gate that leads to the wide-open spaces of Casterbury Park. The 6th Earl of Essex allows the residents of Watford to use the home park for recreation, not the upper park. He keeps that for himself. The old man struggles these days to make the journey from his home along Ridge Lane to the nearby park, but knows it is important to take exercise and breathe the fresh air of the South Hertfordshire countryside that he loves so much. His ancient Jack Russell finds the journey no easier. Keep up, my lad, he says. The dog, Alfredo, looks up at his master, sighs and continues. In time they reach their usual bench and sit. It is early autumn and the trees are tinged with gold as the season turns. He wraps his overcoat around himself and smiles at the beauty of the park before him. His name is Giancarlo and he is 71 years old. Alfredo is 14, a little older than his master. In dog years, at least. Giancarlo is acutely aware of his own mortality and knows that time is short. He bears his discomfort stoically, in the English way, as his father would have said. He has weeks, not months, but is unperturbed by this. Today the sun is shining. The park is transforming itself from the bright light of summer to the darkness and shadow of winter in a display that is breathtaking. He breathes out and drags the sweet air back into his decaying lungs with a soft gurgle. Beautiful, Alfredo. Bellissimo. He closes his eyes and reaches down to stroke Alfredo's head. The dog, in turn, licks his master's ancient hand. As he opens his eyes, he notices something that he has not seen before. He hears their voices before he sees them. A group of young men have appeared from the shadows on the far side of the green space that lies before him. They are shouting at one another and seem to be chasing something. The youngsters are smiling and waving their hands above their heads. Come on, Charlie, old boy. That's a bit butter upon bacon, says one. Pass it, for goodness sake. The man can be no more than 18, thinks Giancarlo. His hair is slick to the side and he sports a patchy moustache but no beard. Now that he is alive to the spectacle, Giancarlo notices two sticks standing upright in the ground and in between them a man in a thick pullover wearing a flat cap. What on earth is this? He thinks. What are they up to? Now he sees it. The man Charlie is not running aimlessly to and fro. He has a leather ball at his feet and is determined to take it towards the two sticks. 
he forces his way inexorably towards the man in the cap. As fast as lightning, the man in the cap rushes out and dives at the feet of the man with the ball, capturing it, but in doing so, he takes a bang to the head from the foot of the onrushing Charlie. Oh, well played. What a brave action, says the man with the slicked down hair. The man between the sticks stands up, still holding the ball. His legs wobble and he staggers to and fro. You need to sit down, old chap, says Slick Hair. The young man looks around him and sees the bench, currently occupied by Giancarlo and Alfredo. Over there, plenty of room. Sure the old fellow won't mind. Charlie, help him, will you? Wheeler looks about done in. Hold him up. He looks like my dad when he's half, half and half, says a lad with a wide face as red as an apple. Oh, do be quiet, Christmas. This is serious. Sorry, Skipper, says Christmas, smirking to himself. The young men make their way to the bench. Excuse me, sir, says Slickhair. My name's Henry, and I wonder if it wouldn't inconvenience you and your fine canine friend here if you would allow us to park young Wheeler on the bench beside you. He's taken quite a knock to his cranium and needs a moment of quiet. Blimey, Henry, says Grace. Swallowed a dictionary. The group laugh. Not at all, young man. Come, Alfredo, make room for the brave boy. The Jack Russell reluctantly shifts to his left, allowing Wheeler to sit down. Thanks, sir. Very kind, says Wheeler, politely. Took a right kick on the noggin. Sorry, Wheeler, old boy, says Charlie. Complete accident, I assure you. Oh, my word, says Henry. That's quite a bump, Wheeler. Giancarlo sits amongst this gaggly youth and surveys them with immense kindliness. Finally, he says, I'm a medical man, or was. Why don't I have a look? Yeah, all right, says Wheeler, whose eyes seem to swirl. First, drink this, says Giancarlo. He whips a flask from inside his overcoat and unscrews the top. Whiskey. Don't tell my wife. The boys laugh. I'm teetotal, says Wheeler. Think of it as medicinal. All right. Wheeler takes a drink and, despite coughing, manages to swallow the fiery liquid. Oh, it's all warm inside. Not too much, Wheeler. Otherwise you'll end up like me dad, says Christmas. The lads laugh once again. Now then, this may hurt. Giancarlo places his thumb on the egg-like lump that has appeared on Wheeler's forehead. He presses down hard, forcing the lump to retreat. Gold, says Wheeler, who slumps into the bench. That flipping well did hurt, mister. There's much laughter. You'll feel better in a minute. Giancarlo puts away the flask and then turns to the boys. Now tell me, what on earth are you all up to? He wanders in the mist, trying to locate himself in this new environment. If Joan were here, he thinks, she would make sense of things. Where is Joni?
he asks himself out loud. And where is Alfredo? The sound of his voice is muffled, but close. The boys explain that what he is watching is association football, or just football, or soccer, depending on what you prefer. Have you never seen it before? asks Henry, who appears to Giancarlo to be the leader of the group. No, we haven't. Have we, Alfredo? he replies, referring to his dog, who surveys the young men with suspicion. Here, sir, says Christmas, does your mutt bite? If you refer to him as a mutt, he may well do. Christmas backs away from the bench. Henry continues. You see, Doc, you're only allowed to use your feet, except for the goalie, that's young Wheeler here, but he can only touch it with his hands when he's inside his area. The object is to get the ball to go between the sticks or posts. That's a goal. The team with the most goals wins. It's jolly exciting, I can tell you. It's better than clarking all day, says Grace with feeling. Giancarlo tries to take in the information as quickly as it is delivered. How do you know your players from the others? He asks. Oh, says Henry, with yet more excitement. We have our own uniforms. So it's kickball, says Giancarlo. Calcio, he thinks, translating the word into his native language. Football, says Henry. Well, it's very exciting to watch, young man. He turns to Wheeler. I think this brave gentleman is ready to resume. Good, says Henry. We need to practice. We were torn to pieces by the Cedars last Saturday, six to nil. It was a massacre, Doctor. Worse than what the Redcoats took at Isandwana, says another of the young lads, who stands next to a chap identical to himself. The youngsters race back onto the field with shouts of, Thanks, Doc. Giancarlo takes a nip from his hip flask to keep out the cold, you understand, and continues to watch the practice. Alfredo naps under the bench. He finds that he is free from pain. His body feels light and most surprisingly, he can breathe without obstacle. He takes deep, satisfying breaths. As he walks along what seems to be an old path, the fog recedes and the sun appears. He is standing in a wood, surrounded by tall trees. He gasps at the beauty of the place. Heavenly, he thinks. Before him a gate appears, a five-bar gate. Beyond it, he hears the shouts of young men and the hum of a partisan crowd. On his return home a little later that evening than normal, Joan expresses her worry. Where have you been, Carlo? It's nearly dark. I was watching something new. Kickball. Football, he says. Calcio. Joan shakes her head in dismay. What are you talking about, you old fool? You shouldn't be out in this damp weather. You should know that, doctor. 
I liked it, he says. It was exciting. The young men running back and forth, kicking the ball, trying to get... He pauses for a moment as he tries to remember the correct term. A goal. That's right, a goal. You should come and see for yourself, Joni. Even Alfredo enjoyed it. In response, the dog moves closer to the fire. Giancarlo is more animated and happy than Joan has seen him in months. She is quietly pleased. The following afternoon, despite much grumbling from Alfredo, the three of them make their way slowly towards the park. They pass the five-bar gate and settle on the bench. There's no one here, you silly old man, she says while holding on to her husband's arm. Wait, he says. From the other side of the park, the young men emerge from the trees and set up the field for today's practice. On seeing the couple, they run over. Afternoon, Doc. Afternoon, Wheeler, says Giancarlo. How's your head? Better, thanks. Mum put a lamb chop on it. Have you come to watch practice? asks Henry, interrupting. Yes, and I have brought my wife. Gentlemen, this is Joan. Good afternoon, madam, says Henry, politely. Um, this is Charlie, uh, Wheeler, you know. Uh, those big lumps are the Horton twins. The chubby one is Christmas. Oi, leave it out, Grover. He's not wrong, says Grace, dryly. They all laugh. Then there's Capel, Valentine, Smith, Grace and Waterman, all good lads, the best, says Henry with pride. In turn, they shake Joan's hand. She is charmed by their politeness and youth. I am Giancarlo Ferrente, says Giancarlo. Go practice, boys, and try not to hurt each other. We'll do our best, Doc, says Henry. Giancarlo and Joan sit in the unseasonably warm sunshine and watch the boys with enjoyment. Joan seems to enjoy it as much, if not more, than her husband. Even Alfredo exhibits a passing interest, although his lies largely with the moving ball rather than the skill of the players. Suddenly there's a shout. Oh, no, says the doctor. Two of the players are carrying a third. They make their way over to the bench. Giancarlo gets up and allows the injured boy to sit. I twisted my ankle, says Charlie. Don't worry, Peacock, says one of the Horton twins in his deep baritone. The doc will fix it. Giancarlo kneels in front of Charlie and removes his black plimsoll from his right foot, followed by his stocking. The ankle is red and swelling quickly. Is he all right? asks Henry, who has pushed his way to the front. No, I am afraid not, Henry. Charlie, you have a nasty sprain. Rest and elevation are the only treatment. Charlie looks downcast. We've a match on Saturday, says Henry. Our first ever home game. He will be all right for that, won't he, Doc? Giancarlo stands and shares a look with his dear wife. I don't want to disappoint you, Henry, but no. 
he will need at least two weeks to recover. Silence spreads through the group. He's our best tackler, says Waterman, finally. And he's the best at heading, says Christmas. Bugger, says Henry. Realising what he has said, he immediately turns to Joan. I am so sorry for my terrible language. Please accept my apology. It's just that Charlie is our best player. Joan, a schoolteacher in her early days and used to the impetuosity of youth, nods her forgiveness. Well, she says, quietly but with authority, you will just have to do without him. I am afraid so, says Giancarlo. After a pause, Henry straightens. Right, boys, we need to reorganise and come up with a strategy. We are the Rovers, and we can't let a setback dispirit us. Come along, back to work, chaps. They race away, leaving Charlie on the bench. Will you come and watch on Saturday? asks Charlie. The game, you mean? says Giancarlo. Match, sir. It's called a match, but yes, will you? Do you play here? No, the Earl won't let us. We can practice here, but not play matches. Charlie shrugs, as if he finds the decision perplexing. So, where? says Joan, showing more interest in the proceedings than Giancarlo expected. Behind St Mary's Church, 3pm sharp. Against whom? Frogmore College or the Reverend D. Patterson Eleven, as they like to call themselves. A right bunch of lardy-dars, if you want my honest opinion. Of course we'll be there, says Joan, much to her husband's surprise. Giancarlo Ferenti was born in Venice. His father, Alberto, traded lace from his workshop and small shop. Ferenti's was a watchword for top-class lace, the best in Venice. His handmade products were worn all over Europe and some of his lace adorned the dresses and cuffs of crowned heads. In 1825 he saw that Britain was the coming nation and moved his operation to London, taking his wife Maria and his only son Giancarlo to London. Alberto's younger brother was left in charge of operations in Venice. They settled in Blackfriars and within months his lace was the talk of the fashionable ladies at court and had even been seen gracing a jacket worn by the king, old Prinny himself, as he was known. Many years later, using the money from his great success, the family moved west to Belgravia, and Giancarlo attended medical school, eventually acquiring a position at the newly opened St Mary's Hospital in Paddington. But Giancarlo longed for the country life, and after meeting and marrying the delightful Joan, they travelled from London, to the small Hertfordshire town of Watford, where a post for a general physician had become available. He loved the fresh air and wide open countryside. He took up the sport of angling and enjoyed many hours by the three rivers that flowed through the county, waiting for the perch to bite. It took time for the Hertfordshire locals to accept their new doctor, who they knew to be a foreigner. But through his patience, compassion and his commitment to the town, he soon became a well-known face, loved especially by the ladies, both young and old. Joan taught in the local free school and showed the women of the town how to stitch lace, a skill she learned from her mother-in-law. After her sons were born, she stopped teaching 
as was the custom of the time. And now here they are, on October the 21st, 1882, strolling arm in arm towards the parish church of St Mary's to watch a match of this new craze, football. The gate in front of him seems real enough. He feels its rough wood under his palms. The sounds of shouting from the other side of the gate seem real enough as well. He notices a leaflet attached to the gate. It reads, October the 28th, Watford Rovers versus St Albans, 3pm sharp. He notices another leaflet on top of a desk next to the gate with an ornate paperweight keeping it in place. What's that desk doing out here in the woods? He thinks. And truly, the desk does seem somewhat out of place. Nevertheless, he reaches down, lifts the paperweight and picks up this second leaflet. It reads October the 21st, Watford Rovers versus Reverend D. Patterson 11, 3pm sharp. That is the game myself and Joni went to, he says out loud. His voice sounds strong, far stronger than it has for many years. How strange, he says. So where on earth am I? Giancarlo and Joan are not the only spectators. Many young men and some young women line the outside of the field on which the match is to be played. Quite a crowd, Joni, says the esteemed doctor. We need to find you somewhere to sit. Some young men notice the elderly couple and quickly vacate the upturned tea chests they have brought with them to sit on during the game. Here you go, Governor. Sit here. And you, Missus. That's very kind says Joan. Charlie Peacock approaches on makeshift crutches. Good afternoon, Doc. Hello, Mrs. Ferenti. Sit here next to Carlo. I'll stand, says Joan. I couldn't, possibly. Don't argue. Just sit. She's right. You shouldn't be putting any weight on that ankle. Charlie sits. He turns to Giancarlo. I'm as nervous as a kitten at a dog kennels, he says. So am I, my boy. We just have to win. At 3pm the match begins. The Rovers' jerseys are half and half, royal blue and sky blue, with opposing coloured collars and sleeves. They wear three-quarter length white or brown breeches held up by leather belts. Knee-high stockings and heavy leather boots finish the uniform. To Giancarlo's eyes, they all look very handsome indeed. Wheeler, as goalkeeper, wears the same uniform as the other players with the addition of his trademark flat cap pulled down tight against the breeze. Within 20 minutes, the Reverend's eleven have taken the lead, despite heroics from Wheeler, Capel, Horton and Grover at the back. Although Grover is not the most skilful player, he more than makes up for it with courage and desire and certainly has the loudest voice as he exhorts his team to greater effort. Just before the first half ends, Herndl gathers the ball on the halfway line and hurls himself towards the enemy's goal. The crowd hold their breath. Giancarlo and Jones stand and lean forward to see the action. <laughs> 
Herndall fakes a pass inside to Waterman which confuses the Frogmore back and shoots the ball home. The crowd erupt in celebration, apart, that is, from a few Frogmore College supporters on the other side of the pitch. Alfredo leaps to his feet and barks with joy. The umpire blows his whistle to announce a ten-minute break in proceedings. Henry spots the doctor and races over with the rest of the team. I'm as mad as hops to see you, Doctor, and you, Mrs. Van... um, Mrs. Ferre... um, Mrs. F. What a game, though! It is rather exciting, says Joan, smiling. She reaches into a net bag and produces some perfect-looking oranges. These came from our eldest, who is currently in Italy with his cousins. She cuts them into quarters and hands them to the skipper. Well, share them out, Henry, she says. Is that an orange, Mrs. F? says Christmas. No, it's a yellow, you fool, says Grace. I've never had an orange before, says Christmas, ignoring him. I've had apples, but not an orange. They munch their orange quarters with muffled groans of delight. I wouldn't mind going to Italy if this is what they've got, says Christmas, with juice running down his chin. Hundreds of trees covered in them says Giancarlo. Right, says Henry, once he's rinsed his hands in the bucket of water he brought in case of injuries. We need to go out there and show them who's the strongest. I think we've seen their best play, don't you? So come on, boys, let's finish them. Yells of hurrah ring out from the players and the supporters who have gathered round to listen. The doctor and his wife are very much at the centre of things. A few hats are thrown into the air, and quickly retrieve from the pitch. The second half goes by in a flash. As the Rovers stumble and stutter to make progress, Giancarlo stands up, and at the top of his ragged lungs shouts, Come on, Rovers! The cry is quickly picked up by the other supporters. Soon the whole crowd, which has swelled to nearly a hundred during the second period, are shouting in unison, Come on, Rovers! Come on, Rovers! Come on, Rovers! The chanting lifts the tiring players. And in what must be nearly the last minute, the ball breaks for Smith, who, after taking a controlling touch, boots the ball goalwards. The crowd falls silent and then explodes as the ball bounces in front of the enemy goalie, goes under his body and between the posts. They have done it. The Rovers have won. We did it, Doc! says Henry, as they all troop off for an ale after the game. We certainly did, replies Giancarlo. One thing, though, yes? That burly young man who played for Frogmore, the one who looks like he could wrestle a bull, the miserable-looking chap, that's very Sergeant Doc. Good player to my mind. Wasted playing for them, if you know what I mean. A grin spreads across Henry's face. That evening, after returning home, life finally catches up with Giancarlo. The excitement of the afternoon has proved too much for him. This is it, I think, Joni, my dear, he says. Time to say goodbye.
She helps him to his bed. She tries and fails to hide her tears. You can't leave me, she says. The good Lord will look after you, Joni. And me, I hope. Don't be sad, my dear. She holds his frail hand and mops his sweating brow as he edges closer to the end. What an afternoon, he says. The winning goal was the most exciting thing that has happened to me since... Well, since... I don't know when. Since meeting you, Joni. Since then. Shh, now, Carlo. You must rest. I am a rover, he says. I will always be a rover. And so must you be. In those quiet hours, when the world is at its most still and peace reigns in the hearts and minds of good men, Giancarlo Ferrente, Venetian-born but an adopted son of the bustling Hertfordshire town, moves through the delicate membrane that separates life from death. Clutching the leaflet for the match on the 21st of October that he found under the paperweight, he pushes the wooden five-bar gate and finds himself next to the small patch of grass behind St Mary's Church. The match has just begun. He mingles with the crowd while yelling encouragement to the players. It is clear that no one can see or hear him. I must be a spirit or something, he thinks. He spots himself and his beloved Joan sitting on the upturned tea chests. How strange, he thinks, to see oneself. He stands next to Joan, but is unable to take her hand. He watches to the end of the game, eagerly anticipating Smith's late winner, and when it comes, he enjoys the feeling of elation just as much, if not more, than the first time. He runs the length of the pitch to celebrate with the players. He finds... He is not even out of breath. A thought occurs to him, and he rushes back to the five-bar gate, revelling in his newfound athleticism. He places the leaflet for the match on the 21st under the ornate paperweight and removes from the gate the leaflet for the match on the 28th of October against St Albans. With much anxiety, he pushes the gate open and walks through. Once again, he finds himself standing by the pitch next to St Mary's, only this time, rain is falling and the opposition are wearing yellow jerseys with a cross embroidered above the left breast. A different opposition can only mean one thing. This is a different game. This must be the match versus St Albans, he thinks. As if to confirm it beyond all doubt, he hears a man shouting, Come along, St Albans. Play up, yellows. The game begins. He watches the entire match with perfect delight after Rovers take an early lead, only to have his mood crushed as St Albans score two late goals to deny the mighty Rovers the win they deserved. The feeling of defeat is a 
appalling. Like nothing he has experienced before. It's ghastly. A terrible sense of injustice overwhelms him, matched only by a singular determination that his beloved rovers will triumph in their next encounter. So wrapped up is he in his grief that he fails to notice Joan standing at the edge of the crowd. When he does see her, his heart leaps. She is a rover, just like him. He attempts to hug her, but of course she cannot feel it and does not notice. He steps back to see tears running down her cheeks and watches as she takes a photograph from her pocket and looks at it. The photograph is of him. Ghostly tears run down his cheeks. Time passes, or so it seems, and Giancarlo gets used to his new life. Or is that death? He is unsure. Each time a leaflet appears on the gate, he carefully removes it and makes his way past the old five-bar gate. He watches defeats to Berkhamsted and Cilicia College, is devastated and takes days to recover from the hurt. He is delighted by victories against the London Orphan Asylum, an oxy and bushy recreation society who only show up with ten men and have to borrow a rover for the afternoon, a reluctant Christmas, and spends the next few days hopping around the woods with joy, re-enacting his favourite goals. On the whole, he is happy with his new existence. The only thing that bothers him slightly is that there is no one else in this tailor-made version of heaven to share his joy at watching the rovers whenever and wherever they play. Then, in early March 1883, not long after rovers smashed the Reverend D. Patterson's 11-13 to nil, in which Sergeant F, now playing for the rovers after a cordial invite to swap teams from young Henry, scored eight of the 13, and Henry himself bagged his first goal for rovers, much to everyone's delight, especially his, he hears a voice calling. Giancarlo makes his way through the mist to discover an elderly man with snow-white whiskers and wearing a top hat. Hello, says Giancarlo. Hello, says the man. My name is Giancarlo. I know who you are. You once treated my bunion. Awful bloody things hurt like hell, although... It doesn't hurt now? No, says the man. It doesn't. It happens up here. I'm sorry, but I don't remember your name. I did see a lot of patients. Oh, yes, of course. The name's Albert. Albert George Grover. Giancarlo stands back in wonder. You're Henry's father. Grandfather, if you please. Yes, yes, of course, I can see the likeness. You must be a rover, like I am. Yes, by golly, I am, says Grover A.G. I most certainly, most definitely am. The old chap seems extremely voluble. I got so excited watching the game last Saturday, I dropped dead of a heart attack. I'm very sorry to hear that. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, really, it's nothing. It's one of the things Giancarlo has always loved about the English. 
their ability to shrug off all manner of disasters as inconsequential, even, it seems, their own demise. And Henry scored his first goal, says Giancarlo. By crikey, didn't he just? And what a strike it was, too. I think that's what did for the old ticker. <laughs> Golly, I'm proud of the lad, says Grover, brushing away a tear. But wait a second. How can you know that young Henry scored if you were up here? Ah, says Giancarlo, weaving a little mystery around the new arrival. Let me show you. He walks Albert to the desk by the five-bar gate where a stack of neatly arranged leaflets lie under the ornate paperweight. These leaflets, the doc explains, are from all the fixtures played by the Rovers. And this one, he removes a leaflet attached to the gate, is for today's game against Bourne Hall. I see says Grover A.G., clearly not seeing at all. I do like a Wednesday match, don't you? Very much indeed. Good. Follow me. Hello there, welcome along to Hive Live. Here in the studio with me, we've got... Former Hornet striker, Tommy Mooney. 137 Earth years later, Giancarlo Ferrenti sits in the television studio in the northeast corner of the Vicarage Road Stadium, watching the live broadcast of Hive Live's build-up to the Derby game on the 16th of October 2020. In time, he will grab a newly arrived programme from the atrium and go to Pride Park via the ancient turnstile on Occupation Road. As he sits listening to the conversation between Emma Saunders, the great Tommy Mooney and the blonde Iniesta young Will Hughes, he takes hold of Joan's hand. She sits beside him, smiling. She has a soft spot for young Hughes. She arrived in the wooded glade in 1899 and was somewhat surprised to find her husband waiting to greet her. She had not missed a single game in the intervening years, watching the boys lift the Hearts County Cup five times. Their reunion was touching in the extreme and celebrated by the now numerous residents of this celestial land for the followers of Rovers. Through the glass, the stadium is lit up by floodlights and glows like a new sun. So much has changed. And so much has improved. Although Giancarlo thinks that Friday night games are simply wrong. With his free hand, he reaches into the inside pocket of his jacket and brings out a locket. He opens it to reveal two very worn photographs of his parents. On the left, his father, Alberto Ferrente of Venice lace-maker to the aristocracy. And on the right, a photo of his beloved mother, Maria Ferrente of Udine. Maria Ferrente, nay, Pozzo. He smiles to himself. Grazie, mamma, 
he says. The End Il Primo was written and read by Mace C.A. It was produced by Wiccan O.S.